Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Hello and welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I'm your host, Laura Redmond. And today, oh my gosh, I'm doing a little joy dance in my chair. We've got Carol Ferris back. Those of you who have had the honor of listening to her prior shows have written to me, many of you, to say, bring her back, bring her back. I learned so much about mindfulness and my own incarnation through her entire wisdom. And she's back today. I'm so excited. So we're here with Carol. And for those of you who are first-time listeners to Carol Ferris's brilliance, I will introduce her formally. Carol Ferris M.A. practices astrology in Portland, Oregon, where she consults with clients, teachers, and tutors privately, and where she writes. She completed her master's in interdisciplinary studies at Merrill Hurst University in 2013. The title of her thesis, The Sky's Body, Constellations and Medicine, reflects her ongoing interest in the nature-based medicine and frameworks of ancient Near East and Chinese philosophy. She is currently curious about the incorporation of five-element acupuncture, thinking into the landscape and season of the horoscope, studying storytelling to make personal narratives clearer, and pursuing possibilities for doctoral work. Welcome back to the show, Carol Ferris. Thanks, Laura. I'm glad to be here. This is a big one today, because you and I were talking behind the scenes for a while about what do we want to bring to the listeners? What do we want to get into? And we came up with the idea of managing chaos, how to deal with this tango between and with darkness and light that is so prevalent right now. In fact, before we just went live, we were saying off mic that everybody is just gnawing at discouragement. The psychic energy itself is at an all-time low. And what you help me understand is right next to that is this possible light, this new life, this feeling of blooming. So I want to open today just with you weighing in on chaos, darkness, light right now. Well, ooh, <laughs> let's see, where to start? <laughs> we need a drum beat. Bum, 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 well, bum. well, here's where I'll start. One of the simplest things about astrology that you can say is not all times are like all other times. And that's simplistic, but noon is not like four in the morning. And October is not like June. And a lot of, I think, what a horoscope is, the horo is hour and scope is map or chart, a map of the hour. Astrological thinking says, how can we know the nature of our time and our place? 
and know that not all times are like all other times and not all places are like all other places. So we can't expect that time is going to stand still or that our current condition will always be the condition. And when, especially when we reach a time that's not like other times, and one of the things that's very clear to me now as an astrologer is that no human being alive today has lived in, from an astrological point of view, a time like this, but other human beings have. And if you're a student of history, and especially if you're a student of big astrological cycles, then you know other human beings have lived through difficult times, through hard times, through times of chaos and revolution and transformation and contraction, and came up with better and worse solutions. So a part of, of looking at a time and a place has to do with, first of all, accepting this time is not like a time that you've been in before, but that there may be lessons from the past that you could take from the past. So a part of what we're living in right now, um, if I can frame it with three astrological concepts, the planets, it, yes, they're, they're bodies that are orbiting in the solar system, but they are also mythological names that describe human processes and human nature, and not just human nature, but humans trying to understand the nature of the nature in which they operate. So to have this conversation about darkness, chaos, and light, there are three astrological terms, planetary terms, Saturn, Uranus, and Pluto. So Saturn is astrology's name for creating structures of value and meaning. It's our desire to bring form and meaning to things by what we choose to pay attention to. Uranus is the antithesis of Saturn. It's what is outside the system. It's not about framing and structuring and making meaning and making sense out of things. Uranus is the name that we give to the free radical, to, to chaos, to things that are outside what we can frame and understand and reference and, to a certain extent, control through meaning-making. And Pluto is past those two concepts, which has to do with the world that's beyond even revolution. It has to do with the power. The, if, you think, if you think about Pluto, his Greek name was Hades. Um, in the ancient Sumerian Mesopotamian world, there were goddesses of the underworld. Um, Erishkigel and was the goddess of the underworld, and Inanna was the queen of heaven. And there are wonderful stories from 6,000, 4,000 BCE about the collision of the dark and the light. So these are old, old stories that are in our bones about how do we make meaning out of times of revolution and chaos that take us deep into a world that is not the world that we've been living in. And I think, you know, you can, you can really see in the United States of America, I'm less familiar because I don't live in other countries and other cultures, although I, uh, I like to know what's in the news and I read quite widely about the politics and the economics of other world situations because 
I live in the whole world. We all live in the whole world. But in the United States, this sentiment, make it like it was, is one response to this kind of time, which is I don't, people don't want for time to move forward. People don't want for things to change. People are, are fearful and, um, and so instead of, think, of opening ourselves to new possibilities, we only want to look back. And um, so that's kind of, I, I'll stop there. That's sort of my, some, my opening statement. Well, really, I think what we're speaking about is a personal transformation of sorts, because if you do stay dialed in, and it's really almost impossible not to, I mean, I finally have found my way with not being bombarded by the negativity and the manipulation of the news because it is so dire. And I do believe it does feed discouragement. Um, And and I want to go back to something you mentioned right in the very beginning, which is that we've been through, human beings have endured hard, terrible times. They've written about it, painted about it, prayed over it. So, what I want to know is what, right now, when you study as you do, what does this time in our history remind you of historically, where you well, feel yeah. there was a survival or a rising or a some, coming, coming through something so hard that is what now feels like for many people? What, what would be a relevant comparative time in your studies that you would refer to where people painted and, and made their way through it or loved it or came through it with some sort of optimism? Well, one of the, one of the um, eras that we could look at that's comparable, and if we just confine ourselves to the United States, is the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s. And it was the same situation. There was drastic economic inequality. There was an uneven distribution of opportunity. There was um, a, a conflict over were we going to turn inwards and stay national or were we going to turn outwards and go global. And out of the chaos and difficulty and uh, a difficulty of that time, eventually came things like the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank and 30-year mortgages and um, the United Nations, you know. So these times where everything is in huge upheaval and when there are times of separation and the structures that have been built aren't sufficient to the task for which they were originally constructed, when, and, and we're seeing this now, um, for example, in our country, in terms of the federal government, there are problems with interstate traffic and the infrastructures of travel are more difficult and the distribution of taxation. I mean, if you think about the storms, if you think about the hurricanes and you think about the devastation and the delivery of recovery services, that all of these systems that we live in were actually designed out of a prior experience of chaos and dissolution. And they worked for a long time, and now they don't work anymore. And so a part of our challenge is not to just say, couldn't we make it like it was, but 
to look at what's, what of what we've designed, what we've framed of how we make meaning, what still holds, what still has value, what's still applicable, and what just is not sufficient to the task. And, and as an astrologer, I'm not just looking at larger trends. I, I, I sit down with this, with my own life and with the lives of my clients and my family of the personal structures that I have built that give me meaning in the world and give me a place to be in the world of how I assign meaning, what, what chaos I can open to, what change I can open to, what I'm close to, how I create an identity in the world. I'm no different than any of my clients. We're all at a point where the structures that we have built are not sufficient to this, what we could say, more contemporary task. And so the challenge is not to try and hang on to the structures that we've built and make it like it was, but to see what, well, what is the task now? Because we've already done that. The structures that we have in place that may or may not be working for us, mostly not working, they worked because they were designed for a different time. So being open to the revolution, being open to the chaos, is what, what presents itself to us now and how will we bring this that we already know. We already know how to build a structure. How do we build that? How do we bring that skill set online for the current event, which means we have to let go of successes, we have to let go of outcomes and be curious and experimental with what might work now. So when you're sitting down with a client or a family member and you're tapping into their personal experience or your own for that matter, yeah. how do you how would you guide someone on a personal level to work with this very high level of dark and light, you know, like if someone were to sit down in your office and say to you, I am so overwhelmed by the darkness. I'm now on antidepressants and I've never been on them in my life. I feel so discouraged. I feel so psychically dark. The shadow has taken, has taken over essentially. What would be an example of managing that sense of what I'm assuming that darkness would be more of what you refer to with that Pluto energy, you know, that, yeah. that going going dark, going deep. How would that personal experience be worked with on your end in order to balance some of that darkness and discouragement with some of the hope, the light, um, and the energy of a new life, a new perspective, this time well, being really unique, as we know that history has had other times that have been tough, this time right now is really putting people to the task. Yeah. Well, I want to, um, you know, this is a, this is a dis- disclaimer. Astrologers are not doctors. And astrologers <laughs> yeah. are not psychologists. We're not psychiatrists. We, we don't have the capacity to prescribe that, that the, the diagnosis and prescription from an astrological point of view is in, in no way clinical. I don't want to take away, as an astrologer, from professional people who, who see endogenous clinical depression and who treat it medically. I, I, I think that there are 
those are important and uh, traditional and successful prescriptions. So what I'm about to say is, is not clinical or medical in any way, shape, or form. As an astrologer, when a client comes to see me and is overwhelmed by darkness, I think about my own experience of being overwhelmed with darkness. And this has to do not just with a response, with a grief response to loss. And a part of what we are facing as a culture is something in us has died. And so in the collective, we are facing a huge loss. And when you are facing a huge loss, when you are experiencing loss, when things come apart, and when it's dark, there is a kind of immobility. And all of the tidy prescriptions about anger, denial, rage, which was such important work in the last century around coming to terms with death, about a death phobic culture that won't come to terms with loss and darkness. That all of that work, people like Kubler-Ross, people like Anne Bremner, who wrote the brilliant book Morning and Mitzvah, which is a, a very useful workbook, um, the incredible book by Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, The Jew and the Lotus, that has to do with a conversation between uh, Rabbi Kushner and the Dalai Lama about coming to terms with loss. We've learned a lot about loss, and our culture is slowly, slowly changing around it. And as an astrologer, Pluto and Saturn are depression and grief markers in the language of the horoscope. And where they travel, where they live in your inner landscape, in your physical landscape and in your psychic landscape, is where you will be experiencing a journey into the underworld where you're not in the upper world anymore. You've left something that's comfortable and familiar, and you're in a land where the coordinates are not the same, even though a lot of cultures have pretty amazing prescriptions for journeys to the underworld, where when you die, you have a map of where you're going to go next. Our culture doesn't have anything like that. And not only do we not have anything like that, but we have an incredible collision of beliefs about loss and the process of grieving around loss. So when I have a client who's left the upper world and has walked into the lower world, and again, this is not clinical and this is not prescriptive, the first thing that I talk about is that you have to live in that world. That when you're living with loss and depression, when you feel terribly, terribly alone, that no one could possibly understand how alone you are, how isolated you are, and how dark it is, and that you don't feel like there's any reason to live anymore. That when you're in that world, you will get to a point where you have a choice to make. And you can't make the choice until you've let yourself live in the world, in that world. It has its own timing. This is a little, uh, this is why this is not medical or clinical, and it's why I feel like astrologers have to make a very careful distinction about this. My own experience of depression and grief and my, my 
uh, empathic relationship to depression and grief in my clients is that it's an alchemical process in which something that was a critical ingredient in your life has been cooked into your life and is now being cooked out of your life and that depression and loss is that experience, that life is over. And the life that is before you will not be that life and that you have to trust yourself at the deepest level of your being, whether it's on a personal level, a family level, uh, or a collective level, you have to trust yourself at the deepest level of your being that, first of all, you have to respect the loss itself. It's why mourning and grief are so important that if you loved something so well when it was alive, it deserves to be grieved when it's gone. And that part of the darkness and part of the overwhelm has to do with a kind of mournful respect for what has been lost. And that has its own timing. So you have to trust yourself that you're not going to be here forever. And all in in Western culture, (laughs) in Western culture, all the great stories about figures that visit the underworld that there's the, the the wonderful um, hero who has been at a wedding and decides he's going to go into the underworld and he's going to seduce uh, Persephone, the the queen of the god of the dead, and so they're all kind of drunk and he and his friend, rowdy friends, descended into the wonder underworld, and then they get down there and realize it's dark and it's scary. And so his friends depart. They go back into the upper world. But, oh, no, he's, he's going to do this. And the farther he gets into the underworld and the darker it gets, the more he realizes that he's really made a mistake. And he sits down to think about it, and he doesn't get up for 40 years. Hmm. And when he's rescued from the rock that he's sitting on for 40 years, he leaves the skin of his buttocks on the rock in the underworld. And that's a story about our experience of depression and grief and loss is we go somewhere and we have to sit for the time we have to sit. And of course, the number 40, whether it's biblical or or mythological, isn't about a literal 40 years. What it means is that, that it has its own timing and that you have to trust that timing. If you are clinically and endogenously depressed, then medication is really important. But from uh, the point of view of the psyche and from the point of view of astrology, it may not be your timing. The medicine may not be your timing. So a part of what I talk, this is my very long-winded answer to your question, Laura, part of my answer to a client who sits down with me in grief and loss is to trust the process. Yeah. Well, see, you're making me think about so many important things right this second regarding darkness, shadow, loss, grief. We are living in a culture, and I know all the listeners can relate to this because I hear about it a lot from my own clients. Everything is expected to happen quickly because we are now in such a sped up incarnation that one of the ways that I note that people feel really left out is that if they are in grief or they are in their dark periods, there is not support around them. In fact, what does everyone typically do? You know, tries to make you, quote, feel better. 
or tries to make you happier or tries to make you smile. And when you're in darkness and you're in difficulty and you're really facing that which is essential to face, that throws you off course, that sort of messaging or that grief has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And and although I've given great credit to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross with the five stages of grief, one of the things that people miss in that very important book that was one of the first ways grief was languaged is it's not about, and you will be done in 10 days or five weeks or four years or 42 years. Like, I mean, I almost feel like I've been in grief most of my life, but it's been my greatest teacher. And I finally learned in the last five years not to deny it, push it away, or feel shameful about it, but to welcome it and to give it a really yummy seat at my table. And that has given me more joy deep down to honor it and welcome it. But I note in my helping others and in practicing what I preach to my clients that there is great shame around the darkness. And that's why I love the idea of this conversation being called a tango with the darkness and the light because it is only the darkness that gives us an understanding of the light, but we're surrounded by the messaging of make it go away quickly, fix it, you know, do something that makes you happy. Well, if you're not feeling that, that is really counterintuitive. So... Yeah, you had a uh, thought there to finish. Well, I just think we need those that guide others, as you and I both do, we need to find a way to make everybody comfortable that is struggling at this particular moment in time. And as you said a moment ago, two things that were really helpful. One is that no time is like any other time. So where you are right now, if you're in darkness, is going to change. And that it always does change. You know, the hardest times must be felt, but they transition eventually. They, they don't always stay that place, that way, that hara. It, it's a time thing that is like a dance, a tango. But yet we well, do, we don't, we don't give enough language to what it is you're, you're identifying so well. So please, let, let's go further with that, if you would. Well, I, I would love to reference a couple of people in, um, one in the North American culture and one in the European culture that I think have a really incredible hold on this. One is Dr. Stephen Jenkinson, who has written a, a book called Die Wise. And um, you can add, you can uh, stream or rent a California. It's not California. The Canadian Film Board did a really interesting documentary on him that's titled Grief Walker. And Jenkinson is uh, has a, a, a school and in Canada outside of Ottawa, and is a, a truly rem- has remarkable insight and language around how to live with loss, the reality of loss, the presence of loss, the respect for the tribe, the respect for the elders, the respect of those who died before us, who gave us life. It's a very, very old, very tribal idea that he is bringing back into the current conversation so that your loss has meaning in a larger, older context than just your life. So I think he's an, an absolutely amazing resource. 
The other resource is a very remarkable storyteller and mythologer named Martin Shaw, and he is um, in Ireland and England, who has is writing and storytelling eloquently, bringing the old, old stories that are in the bones of mountains and rivers and humans. What do we already know in our in in our not only our interpersonal landscapes, but what do we already know? In our, in our family, in our world about this reality of the meaning of loss and our place in a long chain of being. This isn't to take anything away from a personal loss or the grief that we feel when someone dies or when we lose something ourselves or when we're humiliated or we have our own failures. It's just that we can't only think about things in our personal context because we live a life of connection that's much bigger than our own experience, our own private experiences of grief and loss. And so coming to terms, so if you think about that in a horoscope, that in a map, that the map is a landscape, it's a place and it's a time, and that in each and every one of us, is an embodied, profound understanding that we will die and that others have died before us and that we will die. And that it, our, that's what gives our lives meaning. I mean, there's, there are countless incredible cultural landmarks around, around this idea. And, and there's a, almost a kind of traitness about it. But, the the whole idea of living with living with your own nature, which means that you will encounter loss and that eventually you will die, makes it possible to make choices around the uh, about around your life about what really matters to you, about what really does have meaning. And I think a part is if we if I go from the personal now up to the cultural, <clears throat> I think one of the incredibly uh, brilliant opportunities of these dark times where we've lost the thread, we've lost the cultural prescriptions, where we've lost the vision, we don't we're not our, we're mad at our leaders, we're having to take responsibility for our own points of view, so our the, the political body is fractured. I think one of the things that comes out of this is what really matters. What yeah. really matters. And as a result of that, it brings us back to things. It brings us back to things that what, what really counts. And in terms of my innate optimism, as well as my understanding of historical processes, the, the chaos of this time and the, quote, meaninglessness, unquote, of this time and sitting with it, being willing to sit with it, sit with it the way it really is and to see, yes, something is lost, but that something can come forward, that that's our task. Yeah, and that, and that brings us beautifully to the concept of new life, 
new understandings, new ways to be more embodied, which is the word you used and which is what I devoted this whole show idea to is embodied is often considered to be a physical understanding. In fact, it is so much more than just that. And so to be embodied in this tango with ourselves is such a life study. So I wanted to ask you in the astrological language that you have so beautifully mastered, let us understand through your words what this new life could look like, feel like, or how it is best described. Um, This would be the Uranus, Uranus. I always say Uranus, and I always think it sounds like your anus. (laughs) On the fridge. (laughs) <laughs> the first when I was first studying astrology called it Uranus. <clears throat> there are, you know, and it was Uranus. Uranus. The reason that that planet was named that name <clears throat> for thousands and thousands of years, we thought we were at the center of the system that we lived in, and that Earth was in the middle, and that everything rotated around us. And then we found out that no, that wasn't the case. That the Sun was at the center of the system. But that the visible system, that what we could see with the naked eye in space was that Saturn, the planet Saturn, was the, you could say, the boundary or the skin or the portal of, of our solar system. And even though astrologers and astronomers suspected that there were more elements to the system beyond the sphere of Saturn and how early astrologers and early cosmologists thought about the system was that we were, we were kind of at the center of sphere, sort of like being at the center of an onion, so that, that the sun is, in the, is the center and then Mercury is the next sphere and then Venus is the next sphere and then Earth, the third rock from the sun, is the next sphere and that we were in, in these spheres and from a cosmological and from a religious point of view, one of the very early ideas about incarnation and embodiment in the spherical system was that the divine entered the system at Saturn and that your portion of the divine got caught off from the, from the larger, eternal, timeless, unembodied divine and that every stage of the descent through the spheres until you got your body and you got a family and you were here on Earth, what in Kabbalistic terms is called the sublunary realm or the realm of life on Earth below the moon, below all the other spheres, that was the world that we lived in for a very long time. And then Herschel, the, the astronomer Herschel, discovered a planet beyond Saturn through his telescope. And instead of naming it, Herschel, he named it for Saturn's father, Uranus, the sky god, Hmm. outside the system, unembodied, outside the system. So Saturn, the child, one of the many children of Uranus or Uranus or Uranus, is form and law in the system in which we have bodies and where gravity have gravitas outside the system Everything is potential. Hmm. So I think about the wonderful, 
the wonderful two-and-a-half-year-old I know, and this is in direct, this is the first thing I thought when you said, well, what do you have to say about new life? I think about this wonderful two-and-a-half-year-old who, when you're with him, he says, I never saw that before. (laughs) (laughs) I love that phrase. I never saw that before. So that when you, when the old life doesn't work, when you look at things that you always looked at a certain way and they fit into the system in a certain way, you look at it and you say to yourself, what have I not seen? And if I've already seen it, what else is there to see? So the times are asking for a kind of curiosity and a, a willing letting go, a willing loss of that's gone. And I can't see it that way anymore. And I can't build a structure out of it anymore. And I don't want to live like that anymore. But that doesn't mean I'm going to drag everything I already know into a new possibility. If I'm going to sit not only with my loss, I have to also sit with the chaos of the unknown of what might be. So it requires, again, a certain kind of trust and patience and a willingness and a curiosity about what else might be there. Mm. So help us so, with what, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. What is, well, your, just, what is your renal opposition? Because you hear so, that a lot in astrology. Yeah. So for the past, year and really for these past few weeks, the planet Uranus in the late degrees of the sign Aries, which is about um, upward, rapid, spontaneous movement. Um, You know, in Portland, Oregon, we have a wonderful international corporation, Nike, and their logo is Just Do It. That's the Aries motto, Just Do It. And so the energy of Aries is springtime energy. So here we have been living with the Uranus, which is about outside the system, traveling in a season that has to do with just doing it. So the very short way of talking about that is little revolutions everywhere. And and we see it that, that, that everywhere there's new possibilities where we really see it and, of course, where we really like it is new technology and new products because it's one way that we have of coming to terms with the unknown and the new and the untested and the undifferentiated. But if you psychologize that, it's also a great deal of uncertainty and it's anxiety and at a certain level it's trauma because you're outside the system. Opposite Uranus has been the biggest planet in our system, Jupiter, which is a mythological, you know, Jupiter was the Roman name for the mythological Zeus. And Jupiter slash Zeus is lightning strikes. You know, the, the, as, a, as a mythological being and as an, what we could say as an elemental aspect of nature, Jupiter is potent growth and creativity. And so a part of what we've been going through, especially this last year, with Uranus in and out of an opposition with Jupiter, so revolution and lightning, those two things meeting each other, tangling with each other over and over. At the same time that Pluto's traveling in Capricorn, 
systems that we have been building since the beginning of the century, the turn of the century from 1800 to 1900, all those systems that got built out of that are crumbling. They're not sufficient to the task. So we have, um, we have a destabilized structure. We have incredible potential lightning strikes. And we have the urge to change everything, change everything, change everything. So there's not a lot of stability right now. That's when, when it also takes a lot of trust. But it's also, you can see why, if that is the sort of current cosmic weather condition, you can see why a lot of people just go, just make it like it was. Yeah, just, because they I, can't I, you know, find the peace and the purpose yeah. in these uncertain times. Yeah. Or, you know, it's not just seeing uh, opportunities in revolution. I mean, one, the, a, a couple of times that are very much like these times are actually the high renaissance. Mm. You know, and so the, the, when, you, when you get revolution and the lightning strike of insight and creativity, it's when you get absolutely extraordinary cultural and technological advances. And all of that is also going on. We're, we're seeing that at an unprecedented level and how we tend to see it is artificial intelligence or how it gets framed by uh, a, a new technology. But you can also see, here's another example of old structures crumbling. The, the patriarchy is in, in trouble. The, the women are speaking out against old patriarchal structures that were the established structure. And whether you felt threatened by it or you, or you railed against it or you hated it or you worked for a different kind of structure, that structure is destabilizing right now. So there's huge opportunities for women now that just could not have, they, they just weren't available to us before in the same way that at an earlier time like this is actually when the play Lysistrata was written. You know, when, when the women of Sparta and Athens agreed, no sex till the war is over. So, you know, we have, we have been in times like this before and out of the positive possibilities of creativity and chaos and the destabilization of what's comfortable and familiar comes new life. But you have to be, you know, this isn't a directive. I'm really talking to myself here to be open and be curious about what else might be possible than just what you know. And in the meantime, you have to get up, you have to pay the bills, you have to take care of the grandkids, you have to eat well, you have to get a good night's sleep, you have to live in your body, and you have to live with the earth. We have to live with the earth. So, so on, on the one hand, there's these very large cosmic psychological, spiritual, collective possibilities going on at the same time, you just have to get up every day and do the best you can do and live how you live, being open to new possibilities. Mm, that's so well said. And, you know, you, you make me think of that great logo that's the future is female because I do think there is a language. I was at a dinner last night and I was with a sacred group of friends. And at some point, the conversation turned to this, ugh, I hate even mentioning his name, but the Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. Story, and every woman at the table had a story about being taken advantage of physically, sexually by a man, 
that they had never spoken before. And I thought that was so hopeful that everybody spoke about it. Everybody said something. And I think there is this feeling of everything needs to now be said. There are no hierarchical ranks in gender, ultimately. And as the future is empowered in the female voice, there becomes a much greater equilibrium. Well, I I don't have my thoughts all kind of gelled or organized around this, except that I think about my own trajectory as a woman in, um, in, from, you know, I was born in the 40s, and here I am all these years later. I think about my years in corporate life as a woman. I think about my years of being, essentially of being an entrepreneur, of being a married woman, of, of being a mother, and of being a grandmother, and of being a lover, and a, a godmother, and a friend, and a companion. I think about my feminine life in a culture that worships accomplishment and productivity, not relatedness. Mm. And I think about how all those years I had my eye on the prize of accomplishment and productivity. And I understand how women would keep their mouths shut if they wanted to succeed on the culture's terms. Yeah. I, somebody said, well, why didn't they say something sooner? I said, no, 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 no. You know, never mind whether you're consciously buying into the system, which is I want what these guys are running and I'll do whatever I have to do to be successful in the system on the system's terms. Or I don't really understand what's going on here, but I want to find my place in the scheme of things if this is what you're supposed to do. Okay, this is what I'll do. Without judgment about any of that. If the predominant culture says that what matters is accomplishment and productivity and dominance, not relatedness and connectedness, then everyone will aim at that. And the idea of valuing relationship and connectedness over separateness and accomplishment is I think we're in a transition about that in a way we were in a transition about this in 4000 BCE. Hmm. And that when you look astrologically at the great ages, there was a time when, but I, I think probably not with the kind of consciousness we have now, when relatedness, tribal consciousness, was really prized And then we've had a long evolution through individuation and individuation, consciousness and individuation produces success and productivity and distinction at the expense of connectedness and relatedness. It doesn't need to be that way, but it's been a part of the trajectory and the evolution. So a part of the structure, a part of the structure that is crumbling that has held people in a certain way is this is how men and women relate to each other. This is the culture. These are the rules in the culture. And it doesn't matter what gender you are. If you want to succeed on this culture's terms, this is how you have to play. And that is where I do believe, I agree with you, we're at the beginning of a very large change around that. And so we have to be curious. 
not now we're now women have power, but what will we value? And that goes back to kind of where we started, which is when things fall apart and you come back to the center, what really matters? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a beautiful full circle because, in fact, that is the ultimate tango, no matter what the gender, but to have a playing field that does not compromise what it is that creates the greatest embodiment with the individual in their individuation based on their gender. It, it's, yeah. an, it's, it's an equal field, ultimately, with the understanding of the deep complexities of masculine and feminine and ego and heart, you yeah. know, and, for, and, and Pluto and Uranus. You know, there's, there's all these great ways that polarity becomes the nucleus of understanding, which then I believe is ultimately what brings this dark and light together. Well, you know, the unions have a great, great $64 word. I'm not saying that I completely understand this word, but sometimes I just like to say it. (laughs) It's enantiodromia. Enantiodromia. And it is the tendency of a thing to move towards its opposite. And I think about... Polarization, think about the process of projection, the psychological process of projection. That there is some, let's say that there is something in oneself that is not seen or understood or integrated in any way, shape, or form, but it exists. Some quality, some characteristic about yourself that you don't know is there. Your friends try to tell you. Your, you know, your parents try to tell you, but you don't see it. And then you meet somebody, and there it is. And something inside you throws what I think of as a golden rope to the other and hands the other end of the rope to that person and goes, you be, oh, there it is in the world, this thing that I don't know or see about myself, but it's not in me. It's outside me. It's over there, and I'm going to connect to that, and I'm going to get into a relationship, and that's how I'll know what it is. And through the process of interjection and projection and interjection of, of asking something to come towards you from someone else, not just giving something unconsciously away towards the other, but hoovering up something from the other, comes the possibility of bringing into the light what is dark in you. Not dark in the sense of shadowy or awful or difficult, but what is not seen. And so the whole idea of opposition and polarity in Nantiodromia is the possibility of moving towards other, which is coming to terms through externalization, something that is profoundly true about you. And how I always know when I'm in projection territory with somebody, how I always am aware that something in me is wanting attention is when I fall in love or when I'm offended. 
when huh. somebody does something and I'm in judgment about it, you know. And when, when you have these extreme emotional responses, I believe it is a signal from the underground, something is at work in you that of which you are not aware and the other person invokes it in you and it begins the tension of the opposites that has the possibility of bringing you into wholeness. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. So, so the tangle of light and dark has to do not only with how hard things are, how chaotic they are, how depressing it is, how discombobulating it is, but it's that it's our opportunity to, if we hold still and live with it, to see what we have not seen. To, to bring through attention, to bring light on something that exists in the dark, not because darkness is awful, but because darkness is where something lives, yeah. where something is alive and that we have to pay attention to it. Yeah. And dance with it and give it a place at the table in order to be able to understand what it is ready to show us, teach us, or that we're ready to learn, yes. as you say, through that yes. relational or experiential um, story that is subjective to the person yes. that's going through it. Yes, and not only to the person, but to nations. You know, yeah. to say that those people are that way and we're not. We hate that. We're not that way. You know, and so the, the whole idea of how will we not only individually come to terms with what is dark in us, and I don't, again, I don't mean necessarily negative, just what is unseen in us gets projected not only individually onto other individuals, but onto groups and onto cultures and onto nations. And, and I think that, um, that this retraction, this contraction into this is who we are and this is who we used to be and this is who we've always been and this is what matters, that kind of separating um, process, and I'll just call it a contraction, eventually leads to an expansion. And, there, and, um, and from an astrological point of view, there's timing to those expansions, but it's not next week and it's not next month and it's not next year because especially not only from a personal point of view, but from a collective point of view, it takes longer. It's seasonal, not only in, a, in the sense of spring, summer, fall, winter, but, you know, decadal and uh, epical. And so we, we have to have some kind of trust and patience in that too, not only on a personal level, but on a collective level. Which also goes back to what we were saying about the timing of grief. Like there is no clock. There is no calendar. It's just honoring and inviting what is there for you to personally look at. Yeah. Carol, where can people go to work with you through Skype or the phone if they're not located in your um, office area in Portland, Oregon, would you let the listeners please know how to best find you? I have a website, carolferrisastrology.com, all lowercase. And you can read a little bit more about my philosophy. You can listen to our your, our previous interviews, our podcasts, some of the lectures that I've given. I, my recent lecture on Lilith is posted on my website, and contact information about how to how to get in touch with me. 
I'm so grateful that we are on the planet at the same time and that you are another human being that really does hold my hand on the journey and many, many others. And I just want to thank you for always giving me greater tools to really respect that each of us are the architects of our own healing and that you complete you. Well, um, it's entirely mutual, Laura. Thanks so much. Uh, Carol Ferris, have a beautiful day, and thank you. To all of you, too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. We'll be right back. 